0: Have you ever seen a a, a movie you could probably draw to mind, a a scene in a movie uh, that, and there are many like this, that have a a primary character who never speaks? You know, someone who all your attention is drawn to, but they're sort of in the background the entire time, but really the the entire scene is about them. I thought about this with, uh, there, there are plenty of scenes like this in different movies, but I thought about this with the... The Dark Knight movie where you have a scene and Heath Ledger's character, the Joker, is in uh, jail and there's this whole scene of a whole bunch of things happening around him. But really the entire scene, your attention is drawn to Heath Ledger the whole time. Your attention is drawn to this one character who never speaks. All all of this bustle around. But your focus is on that one character. Director's... Often will use this uh, as sort of a strategy to, to, in an indirect way, draw your attention to one person. Luke, in these stories, and especially in this story this morning, where you have the hustle and bustle of the temple, Mary and Joseph bringing this child, Jesus, Simeon and Anna, characters who have been waiting for him, uh, they're all, all these things are happening, and, and the person, Jesus Christ, this baby, this child never speaks, we don't get many details about him, but yet all of our attention is drawn to him. Everything is about this character, this one baby, this helpless infant, He's probably squirming, crying, getting hungry, needing to feed from his mom, This one character is the center of everything. So what I want to do this morning is I want to draw your attention to the significance and the impact of this baby, of this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the most significant and impactful person in all of Scripture, because he is, as we find out, the God-man. God himself brought down, taking on the body of a child. And in, 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 in we'll see this morning even uh, some foresight into what he will do on earth in order to save us. But I want to draw your attention to, Je- to Jesus by drawing your attention to three pairs of realities about Jesus Christ this morning in this text. Three pairs of realities. And they're really, uh, all three of them are unlikely pairs of realities. They're, they're unlikely uh, sets of things that we will look at as we look at Jesus this morning and, and, and I believe as we look we 'll find in each of these pairs of realities that that there 's one thing that we'll probably be a little bit more comfortable with, and one thing that 'll be a little more difficult for us as we look at this person of jesus okay so we 'll we'll, we'll jump in here and and we 'll just spend a few minutes exploring each of these pairs of realities and the first pair. Of realities about Jesus Christ in this passage that I want to draw your attention to has to do with his coming, with the context of his coming, how he comes. And that is this, that as Jesus comes, he operates under both God's law and God's spirit. Jesus comes under both God's law and God's spirit. These are not normally things that we pair together. The idea of the, the Holy Spirit. When we think of the Holy Spirit or, or, or being spiritual or spirituality, we tend to think of things that are uh, maybe not uh, bound to a set of rules or things that, that, are, that are more free-flowing. We think of God's Spirit as, uh, as, as someone who... who in the book of Acts or other places in Scripture comes and, and anoints God's people or, or brings about things, these wonderful signs like miracles and tongues and all of these, these different glorious things. And that's true. It's true of God's Spirit. But we think of the law as something utterly different. The law is a set of, of things that, that, that we're bound to, things that lock us in, things that God's given that, that in the Old Testament that, that may be obsolete or old. Or the things that, that, that restrict us, that hold us back. I want you to notice this morning that Jesus comes under the operation of both of these things. Under both the law and the spirit. We'll just look at this for just a moment. First I want you to notice how he comes under the law. And this is really what Luke is saying in these first several verses. Verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Okay, so the first thing Luke points out is that he was circumcised. This is part of God's law in the Old Testament. In the book um, uh, of Genesis, chapter 17, Abraham is commanded to circumcise his children and to be circumcised. and every Every single male that's born in Israel is called to be circumcised. And this is to be a sign of the covenant. This is a sign of God's relationship with his people. So God gives them this rule, this law, in order to have relationship with himself or to show this relationship that God has decided to create with his people. So there's a sign of the covenant, a sign of God's relationship. And they called him Jesus, we saw. The name given by the angel. Again, they're following what the angel of the Lord told them. Here it's emphasized that Jesus is going to be the savior of his people. But, but it goes on in verse 22. Luke continues. He says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So not only in the Old Testament are, are, are the Israelites, God's people, called to circumcise their children, their sons, on the eighth day. But then a little bit later, uh, in Leviticus chapter 12, God's people are called to be purified. And specifically, women who have given birth are called to be purified. Now this is something uh, that, that God's people are called to in, in, in the midst of a number of different cleanliness laws, clean laws that we find in the book of Leviticus. Things that we don't, again, pay attention to very much now because we believe that Jesus has fulfilled these laws. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But what's important to see here is that, that God's people were called to do these things, to become clean after things like birth had happened. So in Leviticus 12, God calls his people to make purification. But what's interesting here I want you to see is is that Luke says this. He says, when the time came for their purification. This is very subtle, and Luke does this a lot. Uh, And commentators disagree. Scholars disagree about what exactly he means by their purification. Really, Mary's the only one that has to be purified here. Mary's the only one in God's law that has to be purified. But Luke says their purification. He intentionally uses the plural. What I think Luke is hinting at here and some other subtle places throughout this story is that Jesus Christ has come in every way under God's law and subjected himself and allowed himself to to follow every single piece of God's law, not only that people might be purified, and redeemed and brought into relationship with God, but, but, but that he might be the one to purify all things. So that even as, even as Mary goes for this, this law-abiding moment of purification after giving birth, that, that, that all things are being purified, that Mary and Joseph even are both being purified by this act in a way that before would not have happened in God's law. So there's a purification, and then they offer a sacrifice. We, we see another element of the law here in verse 23. It says, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now what's interesting is, yes, that is said in the law of the Lord that when you bring a sacrifice, you can bring a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons, but there's something said before that in God's law. Back in Leviticus 12, once again, it says this. It says bring a lamb for the sacrifice. But if you can't afford a lamb, you can bring a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Luke doesn't come out and say that Jesus' family was one that was poor and couldn't afford the better sacrifice. But he tells us what sacrifice they offered. So once again, in a subtle way, we see in this story a truth, a reality about Jesus Christ, that he came and he submitted to God's law, and he came specifically in the context of a family that didn't have very many means. They weren't able even to afford the more expensive sacrifice, the normal, quote-unquote, normal sacrifice. Now, it's unlikely that they were in abject poverty. Joseph had a trade. He was a carpenter. But they were poor. This is the family that Jesus chose to come into, a family that couldn't afford the better sacrifice. So we see not only this sign of the covenant, circumcision, this sign of, of purification, something that we need to become clean. We, we see not only this need for sacrifice, but we also see uh, this idea of, of the firstborn being set aside for the Lord. This is from Exodus 13. And I know this is a lot of information going back to God's law. This is the last piece here I think that Luke draws our attention to. But I wanted you just to see the different elements of God's law that Luke shows us here. And he emphasizes it by bringing out several different places. In Exodus 13, after the people of Israel have been led out of Egypt, and how are they led out of Egypt? God over and over again since these plagues on Egypt and Pharaoh just will not listen and nothing gets his attention until the firstborn son of all the Egyptians are killed. But if you remember, when God's angel of destruction comes, it's not just the firstborn sons of Egypt that are threatened, it's all the firstborn sons. And what does he command his people, Israel, to do? He says, instead of the firstborn sons being killed, you must sacrifice the firstborn lambs that you have. You have to redeem your firstborn sons. So when they go out of Egypt, in Exodus 13, God says to them, for the rest of your history as a people, when the firstborn son is born, you need to redeem him. You need to buy him back. You need to pay something for him, to me. Because I saved you because I kept your firstborn sons from dying, even as I displayed my glory to Pharaoh who wouldn't listen. So Jesus, his parents bring him and they, and they redeem, they follow this law, they redeem the firstborn son. A ransom price had to be paid, even for the one who came to pay a ransom for us. These are all distinct images of our deep need. And this is what God's law really does. It it does a number of things. It leads us to see God. But but one of the things that God's law does is that it leads us to see our deep need for him. How much we need him. And if you read through God's law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll be uh, overwhelmed by the need. The need that we have before God. So all of these imf- uh, images of our need, these distinct images of our deep need for God, all of these show up at the very beginning of Jesus' coming. And he chooses to come under these things, under the law. But not only that, he also chooses to come under the influence of the Spirit. And you see this just in a few places, but, but, but most specifically in, in uh, the description of Simeon. In verses 25 to 27, three different times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Holy Spirit is a part of what Simeon is, is doing in the temple. God's Spirit is operating in this person of Simeon. It, it, and you can imagine this moment where Simeon, this man, takes Jesus, the baby Jesus, into his arms. And think, I want you just to just think about if you've held a baby. Maybe you haven't. But if you have, think about that feeling of holding a baby. And Simeon takes this baby into his arms. And, and I don't know what the scene was like, but, but Luke just kind of describes it as he takes him. So Mary's, Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, are there with this new baby, this probably just a, a couple months old baby maybe, and, and this man is there and he takes him into his arms. He's holding the baby and he knows. He knows. He knows this is the one something about this baby but really something about the spirit of God operating in this person Simeon sees this human baby and he realizes salvation is here and throughout the narrative so far we've seen this theme of God's in Luke 1 and 2, this theme of God's Word coming and it being fulfilled, it coming true over and over and over and over. And here we see someone who's been waiting his entire life, but he's been promised that he won't die until he's seen God's salvation. And once again, God's Word comes true. So we see these two things God's law and God's Spirit. They're both working together to show us Jesus from the very beginning of the narrative. And, and I want you just to think about for a moment, what does, this, what does this show us? Why is this important? Well, I want you to see that the spirit and the law are not enemies. Okay, so when we look at God's word, these large sections of law and these sections about God's spirit and how the spirit operates, these, they aren't enemies to one another. They actually work together. Both, they work together in this way. Both God's spirit and God's law point us to one thing and one thing only, and that is to this baby. That is to Jesus Christ. So as we read God's law, and, and you could even think about it, at maybe as you reflect, as we enter into this new year, as you reflect on the last year or, or you think about the year to come, you could think about in your own life, maybe I have this tendency to think about things in terms of, of rules or morals or ethics. Some of us have more of that tendency. Some of us have the opposite tendency. Maybe we think more about the, the, the spirituality that we want in our lives or, or, or spiritual experience. Here's what I want you to see. For both of those groups of people, think about your own tendency. Do you tend to operate more by rules or morality or ethics? Do you tend to operate more uh, by the spiritual experiences that you have? Well, neither of those things are worth anything unless they're pointing you to Jesus. the beauty in this passage is that we see this. The way that these two very different sorts of things find their fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. The law and rules and morals and ethics are dead and useless without Jesus. And spiritual experiences are dead and useless without Jesus. our entire lives are pointed to Jesus Christ. You know, if we only follow laws and rules, what we end up with and what it tends to lead us toward over and over and over again throughout history and in our own experience, this, this kind of religion tends to lead to stratification, to, to, to different levels of achievement, to inward focus, That is death, friends. God's law is good because it points us to Jesus. God's spirit, the very third person of the Trinity, is good and always leads us to Jesus. And, And if it's not leading us to Jesus, it's not God's spirit. So we see that first unlikely pair of the law and the spirit working together. And we see these ways that even as Jesus experiences these things under the law, this redemption, even as he is redeemed, he's come to redeem. Even as he is purified, he's come to purify you. Even as he is given the sign of the covenant, he's come to bring you into covenant relationship with God. Uh, But then we also see a a second unlikely pair. In this passage, the second unlikely pair has less to do with his coming and more to do with our reaction, people's reactions to him. And that is this pair of peace and division. He's come to bring peace and division. Jesus has come, clearly in this passage, as the only way. We like the idea that he's come to bring consolation or peace, and that's very, very important in this passage... But, but, but it's harder for us to wrap our minds around and think about this idea of division, which is also a theme, friends, in the gospel. There's an intentionality behind even the location where, where God providentially makes this story happen. It happens in the temple. It happens in this temple building where, where those who thought that they were in the very center of God's plans are the very ones about whom Simeon says in this passage that this child is destined for the rising and fall of many in Israel. And we'll see this throughout Luke's gospel, where those who thought they were at the center of God's plans are the ones that are actually cast out. And the reason that they're cast out isn't just arbitrary. They they make an intentional choice to reject the Son of God. They actually are the very ones who will crucify him. The very ones who, as they're focused on their own ability to be in the center of God's plan, their own ability to hold on to these these rituals, they can't see what all of it was pointing to. And they reject the one who all of it was pointing to. They throw him out. Simeon says, the proud will be brought down, the lowly will be raised. Or Mary said that in, in Luke 1. And Simeon gets at the same point here. Friends, Jesus brings a clear division. He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Those are hard words for us to hear. But the division is based on, on, or seen in, I should say, our response to Jesus. It's not based on our response. It's based in God's grace and choice to us. But it's seen in our response to Jesus. And friends, I want you to think this morning about what is your response to Jesus? Do you come to Jesus on your terms or on his? Do you come to him looking at the, at the person who's presented to us in his word? Or do you come wanting certain things from him? Do you come only looking for those things that will make us feel at the, at the center? And so often it's our tendency to do that. It's just a human tendency to want to hold on to those things that make us feel at the center of God's plan, but the reality is Jesus Christ is the one that we come to. Jesus Christ is the one we're called to respond to, and it's on his terms, not ours, that we're called to come. He's come to bring division, and the irony that that this story happens in this central Jewish location is followed by this prophecy of Simeon that that the Gentiles will be brought in. Those who are on the outside it's promised that they will be brought in. The lowly will be raised. So what I want you to see is it's not just division that Jesus has brought but it's division that, that serves the peace, the consolation, the comfort Of those who do choose Jesus Christ. Of those who do come to him. Of those who do give up everything to be his. Those who receive him. And this is where we see the beauty of Anna, who I talked about just very briefly last week. But Anna, who was waiting, waiting 84 years 84, it's hard to tell in the text, you, you, we don't really know if it's saying 84 years she lived as a widow after she was married or if she was 84 years old. Either way, it's been a long time since her husband died. She's been living for a long time as a widow, waiting, 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 there in the temple fasting and praying every day and God shows his salvation to her. And all of that waiting All of that disposition that she's had toward Jesus throughout her life of suffering and difficulty and shame, she now experiences the grace of God and she immediately responds by going and giving thanks to everyone else who's waiting. Jesus has come not only to bring division, to call people to a choice in himself, to follow him, to give up everything, to, to, to give up their pride and their wanting to be at the center, but he's also come to give those very people peace and consolation and comfort. It's the same words that the prophet Isaiah said in the Old Testament, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. You know, think about these two figures, Simeon and Anna, they really embody all of humanity. It's a, it's a man and a woman, I think, intentionally, that, that show what a proper response to Jesus is. Simeon and Anna, male and female, all of humanity's response to Jesus ought to be this response of waiting. And, and Anna, who's been a widow, and Simeon, who, who's unique in that he knows that he's not going to die until he's seen the Lord's res- Messiah, but now he's ready to, he says, depart in peace. Now he's ready to die in peace. And friends, this is what Jesus has done. Death for believers, and this is unique, this is unique. Death for believers is no longer an enemy that we have to cower underneath. That only those who trust in Jesus can, can depart in peace. The very thing that, that is most frightening, most scary, the biggest enemy in life can be met with peace for those who know Jesus Christ. how Paul and Philippians can say to, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain though death is still an enemy it's a defeated, powerless, impotent enemy because Jesus has robbed it of its power so as we go to death we can depart in peace he's come to bring division and peace but finally he's come to bring one more pair of things that are also unlikely mates, and that is blessing and suffering. He's come to bring blessing and suffering. And I want you to see this for just a moment here. Up until this point in Luke, Jesus has been announced almost exclusively in triumphal terms, terms of victory, of salvation, uh, positive sorts of things, the triumph and the benefit uh, of his coming. And it hasn't changed in this passage. Simeon blessed Mary, it says, but the blessing was probably not what Mary wanted to hear. Look at the blessing that he blesses Mary with. Okay, he blesses God. He says, Lord, you're now letting your, servant, letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, those on the outside, and glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled, but then he says this, Simeon blessed them and said to, his, to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointing, appointed for the fall and rising of many in, in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And for the first time in all of these uh, experiences that Mary has had about Jesus, all these announcements of salvation and the lifting up of the lowly and the bringing down of the powerful in, in God's Coming to his people, Mary now, for the first time, is told that a sword, and the, and the image here is very graphic. It's a broad, big sword, is the word that Simeon uses, will pierce your soul. And Mary, for the first time perhaps, understands that the glory and the salvation and the good news will not come without heart-wrenching suffering. Without her soul being pierced through. There's no Messiah without a cross. There's no triumph without death. Luke 14, Jesus will say to his followers that they have to take up their cross and follow him, that anyone who comes after me must deny all that he has. It's the, it's the suffering, the the. the experience of death that Jesus calls us to, but yet it's that very suffering and that very experience of death that leads us friends to life. This is the gospel. This is the Christian message that, that, that we have been given a free gift of divine blessing, the, the fulfillment of all you were ever created to be, and it's absolutely utterly free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. In fact, if you try to earn it, if you try to do something to earn it, then you're doing it wrong. You're actually believing a false gospel. It's utterly free, and yet, that very utterly free gospel that you can't do anything to earn will cost you everything. It's the costliest thing you'll ever experience. You give up your very self. You die to yourself. You make the choice to follow Jesus, to reach out to him in faith. This is a choice of death to everything you've ever known. Death to your old systems of value. Death to those things in this world that you care about. But that's the very choice that leads you to life, friends. That's the gospel. There's nothing you can do to earn it you put your trust in Jesus, it costs you everything because he gives life abundantly. God himself purchased this gift for you at the cost of his very own life. And if your Savior, if Jesus Christ died for you, how are we not willing to give up everything for him, friends? My call this morning to you just wanted us to look at, at Jesus this morning. As, again, as we sort of enter the new year, and I know last week we had a prayer service, but, but as we enter this new year, I want you to just look at this person of Jesus, to see Jesus, see these, these different pairs of reality, and that's where we focus this morning, just looking at these things about Jesus Christ. But, but in your own life, friends, are you coming to Jesus daily? Are you coming to your Savior daily? Are you learning to give up everything? We are not going to do it perfectly. We're going to mess up all the time. And yet we learn to come to him, to give up our old ways of being and doing and thinking. Come to the only one who gives us life. Let's continue to learn to do that together. Let me pray for us. And then we'll sing one final song together. Lord God, even as a baby, even as a child of a poor family, couldn't afford the normal offering, you show us that you've come to bring us life out of death. But Lord, that that life will mean that we can't hold on to our own ways of doing things. That we have to submit ourselves to you. That we have to give ourselves to you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to learn to do that. Help us to give all of ourselves to you. Following you. And Lord, bring us the consolation that you brought to Simeon and Anna. And Lord, we know that you already have brought us that in Jesus Christ. And we look forward to the day where we'll experience it fully with you for all eternity in your presence with you as people bought by your blood and risen to life in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray all this. Amen. Friends